Republicans are divided over aid for Ukraine. There are voices on both extremes of the political spectrum in the US that are calling for aid to Ukraine to be curtailed or even stopped. In fact, there are divisions right across the Western alliance that is supporting Ukraine about the scale and speed of military supplies and capabilities that need to be delivered. Stephen Moore has been described as the guy working behind the scenes to keep Republicans on board. So is Stephen the GOP's man in Kiev? And what is his message for Ukrainian skeptics in the US political establishment? Please like and subscribe to see more of our great speakers and the content on the Silicon Curtain channel as it evolves. Also, please consider supporting our work by becoming a patron or buy me a coffee. Stephen Moore is a political strategist who spent seven years as chief of staff and senior leadership aide in the United States Congress, developing relationships with senior policymakers across the United States and around the world. He worked on Capitol Hill in the House of Representatives, mostly as chief of staff for former Republican Pete Roskam the former chief deputy GOP whip. In that role, Moore was one of the most influential staff members on the Republican side of the aisle. Stephen is a non-profit professional and public opinion researcher with experience in more than a dozen countries, including Iraq, East Timor, and the Democratic Republic of Congo. Before we start, is that intro more or less accurate, or do you have anything you'd like me to add? Uh, no, that's that's a geez, that's a flattering intro. And, uh, you know, um, David Finney, who wrote that article, I spent 17 hours in a car with him uh, going from Kiev to Krakow. And so uh, so he got to know me pretty well, get to know each other pretty well. Um, yeah, I think I think that that covers it. You know, I'm excellent. Of course, you have spent a considerable amount of time. Uh, in Ukraine since the full-scale war began. Before we dive into the sort of political minutiae and the sort of struggles for aid, could you describe a little bit of your personal story? You know, why are you so intimately connected with uh, Ukraine? And when did this sort of, I would say, this activism uh, begin? Yeah, sure. So, um, look, I've always had a strong connection to freedom. Um, you know, I spent three and a half years after September 11th, 2001 in Muslim countries, trying to help them figure out how to make, um, how to solve their problems with, with words rather than guns and bombs. Um, I have the Arabic word for freedom tattooed on my leg. And so I went to Ukraine in 2018, 2019. I was doing public opinion research for one of the largest news organizations here. And uh, just spent about a year here, had a great time, met a lot of really wonderful people. The energy here is just unlike any place else in the world. Um, you know, freedom, entrepreneurship, change, dramatic change, tragic change. Um, this is an amazing place to be. Um, so after I, I lived here, I, I uh, worked for a company called Data Robot, which at the time was one of the best funded AI companies in the world. They had 500 employees in Ukraine. So I had all these Ukrainian friends and then when the Russians launched the full-scale invasion, um, I had just left the AI company, Data Robot, and was actually thinking about doing some skiing. I was thinking, now, should I go to the Alps or should I go to the Rockies? And then uh, the Russians invaded. My friends are saying to me things like, they're bombing Kiev. I don't know what to do. And having spent nearly two years in Iraq during the beginning of that war as a civilian, I knew what to do. So I hopped on a plane and, and came to Ukraine as soon as I could. So that's the opposite movement of what a lot of people did. I mean, some have gone back since. There aren't that many who stayed. And of course, the rhetoric and indeed the sort of media bubble was telling people that Ukraine would fall in three to 10 days. There are notably some who didn't believe that. Ben Hodges is one and Mark Hurtling and others I've interviewed or others. I think General Petraeus was sort of saying, you know, that is that is probably not going to happen. Did you have a strong feeling that Ukraine would stand and that Kiev would not fall? Not at all. <laughs> no, I was one of the, you know, 99.9% .9 of the world that, that was looking at this and said, you know, it, it, you know, I was in Trinipsi. I was hoping to stay for three weeks, you know, and uh, Trinipsi was is in the southern, very southern part of Ukraine near the Romanian border. And uh, so I had I just thought they're going to fight bravely. They're going to fall. There's going to be an insurgency. 
And that was my point of view. I was wrong, happily wrong. And of course, the initial supply of weapons to Ukraine from both the US and the UK, especially with the N laws, that was very much defensive on the idea that this would quickly morph into an insurgent strategy. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I got here. One of the first things I did was I had the anarchist cookbook translated into Ukrainian. <laughs> and I sent it to everyone I possibly could. Uh, and, uh, you know, fortunately, there's not that many places that need it right now. So um, that that was my point of view. Um, and uh, yeah, so after about three weeks of, of being in Trinipsi and, and the Russians not arriving, um, but a lot of my friends, you know, did arrive. I got a bunch of people out of Kiev and Kharkiv and other hotspots and uh, helped them get to safer parts of Ukraine or, or out of the country. And then like at, at, and after about three weeks, all my friends that wanted to be safe were safe. So I thought, you know, what am I doing now? Do I declare victory and go home? Uh, and and then um, the need for basic relief just became so profound and the inability of the international community and international organizations to respond quickly and effectively to those needs was negligible. So uh, there was a bunch of guys like me, um, Ukrainian, American, you know, uh, the, the Israelis were here. There's a bunch of people early on that did a lot of work getting medicine to, to clinics and little hospitals near the front, particularly in Kiev, where I was at, that didn't have the means to take care of war wounded and and you know the the organizations you might expect to be there the international committee the red cross for instance was not there they were raising money off of ukraine but they were not there and that is a pattern we see with many international organizations and that finger has been pointed at the un as well um you know if you type in ukraine you will see numerous adverts uh, generating money but people who I spoke to on the ground say that uh, either their trucks are parked up in compounds or, uh, you know, it's mostly Ukrainian civil society organizations that you see in the most dangerous spots and actually doing the most meaningful work. Is that your experience, too? Yeah, um, that is my experience. And uh, I, I will say this, the, the World Food Program, I've seen them be effective. Uh, there, there is large amounts of food that I saw last summer uh in areas near Kharkiv and so I, I I um I can't complain too much about the world food program um you know the folks that did really good work uh Samaritan's Purse was everywhere I was um World Central Kitchen was another one it was Andres out of out of uh, Washington DC uh was another one every everywhere I went both those organizations were there and I've met guys from from, from there. Uh, they're very impressive, the work they're doing. Well, let's get back to, uh, you know, the sense of this war. And it's been described as the least ambiguous, the least morally ambiguous war since the Second World War. For you, is it a straight fight between sort of freedom and forces that are looking to limit freedom? Jonathan, this is my fifth conflict area, six, if you include Congress. And uh, this is the most obvious and most glaring example of good versus evil I have ever seen. Um, the Russians are doing every horrible thing that you can imagine. And I'm gonna put something in your head and something in your viewers' heads that they don't want there, but I'm gonna do it anyway, because people need to know this. Um, I work with an organization that was founded to take care of, of female um, survivors of, of sexual abuse, domestic sexual abuse. They have since expanded to take care of uh, survivors of, of, of both sexes of sexual abuse at the hands of Russian soldiers. And um, their victims skew older. And when I say older, I mean older than 70. Uh, the Russians are raping grandma. And, and here's why I know this is true because you can hear all manner of stories, but I tell the stories that I know are, 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 are true because older women and older families can't run. They don't run. And when I go to some place that's been recently liberated from the Russians, the only people there are you know people who are, who are advanced in age because 
they say, you know, when it was time to evacuate, they're like, I've lived here all my life. Uh, where would I go? Um, you know, I survived the Soviet Union. I'll survive this. But this generation of Russians is particularly brutal and savage and are doing the worst thing imaginable. And in addition to that, these acts could be dismissed as the sort of random acts of individuals, but actually there seems to be a strategic pattern in the terror and abuse. Do you see this as a sort of feature rather than a bug of the Russian invasion? Yeah, and, and I think it's something in the re- Russian DNA or something in the, in the Russian um, playbook. I don't know, because I recently started reading histories of, of World War II, um, and, uh, and, and there's, there's examples of the Russians in Germany uh, using rape as a we- weapon of war. And I, you know, I did not go looking for this information. It found me. And uh, so, so yeah, I mean, the atrocities are so widespread and they're so similar in nature. Um, as one example, I work with some war crimes investigators in the Kharkiv region. Great guys. These guys are, um, are uh, SBU agents and they are combining with the local rayon prosecutors or rayon as a county so like Izum rayon prosecutor you know who who you know Izum is not a cosmopolitan place on a good day and you know so these guys are accustomed to prosecuting robberies maybe a murder every now and then you know the 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 SBU agents are, are, are accustomed to you know white collar crime that sort of thing they're not accustomed to war crimes and the problem that they had when i met them is they had too many pieces of evidence to process too many war crimes to process. And so, so they, they had to, to get a, a, a database uh, you know, that kind of is used by uh, the FBI. Uh, Palantir is the company that uses that, if anyone's familiar with those. And, and they, so they got this software because there was just too much information of brutality and horror for them to process effectively. That's absolutely horrific. Um- Freedom is one thing. Ukrainian freedom is one thing. And I think, you know, someone like you on the ground gets a good sense of it. When it comes to communicating the requirement to support Ukraine, is that enough? Or do you have to broaden the debate to say, no, this is about Western freedom. This is about American freedom um, to actually get people to fully engage. I mean, how do you how do you try to get the message across? Yeah, that's a good question. And, you know, Jonathan, as you know, um, when when people like you and me are communicating about what's happening in Ukraine, we're going up against a very effective Russian propaganda operation. Uh, these guys are phenomenal. And, uh, you know, some days you know, I work for seven years in Capitol Hill. I got a bunch of friends on Capitol Hill. So I'm able to go and talk to people. And uh, and what I find is that that, you know, that when you talk through with them what's going on here, they really come around. They're like, oh, wow, I get it now. But um, but you got guys like Tucker Carlson um, who who, you know, I understand for people in America, it's difficult to to figure out who to believe. Uh, so do you believe Tucker Carlson? I don't know, you know, so, so, but, you know, I know what he's saying is false, but that's because I'm here. Um, but here's what I can say about Tucker Carlson. Tucker Carlson is the TV personality that the Kremlin wants you to see because they'll say something. The Kremlin propagandist will say something the next night. And this is when he had a TV show, Tucker Carlson would say it. And then the Kremlin propagandist would take that Tucker Carlson clip and put it on their show and say, see, there's an American that has it right. So regardless of what you think you may know about Ukraine or the situation here, um, Tucker Carlson is giving the message that the Kremlin wants you to hear. That is a classic technique uh, that propaganda uses to amplify its message and create this alternative reality um it's you know people on this channel watching this channel there's there's quite a high number of sort of republicans watching this we even have a number of sort of maga kind of guys watching this who are pro-ukrainian and that's been an interesting revelation to me but i think they will still defend people who 
uh, amplify or repeat Kremlin narratives. So I think it's it's useful, isn't it, to look beyond political labels and, as you say, look what people are actually doing. If someone consistently repeats Kremlin propaganda and then is amplified by those same propaganda networks, you have to ask what their motives are. Now, you've mentioned Tucker, of course, is more on the right uh, of politics. But this isn't confined to just the right, is it? You have extremes on both aisles who are parroting Kremlin narratives. Yeah. Well, at the beginning of the war, um, there was a lot of talk about Nazis. And that is straight out of the Kremlin playbook. And there was, uh, as I recall, 43 Democrats in 2019 that signed a letter trying to make Azov, the Azov Battalion, um, a terrorist group and because they're Nazis and it's nonsense. Um, and, and, and I'll tell you, uh, at the beginning of the war, um, I was trying to put together a, a deal where, where a, uh, some significant donors were going to put in, you know, about a quarter million bucks, uh, to get body armor um for for ukrainians because as you recall at the beginning of the war there was insufficient numbers of body armor and so um so i had this deal i i you know was working it and, and there was several people involved it's complex and someone a key person dropped out and the whole thing um went away because she said that i don't want my money to go towards nazis and so there's a lot of dead Ukrainians right now because of of the uh, of this Nazi nonsense um, that's propagated by people. And uh, there's a uh, you know there's a particular article that was referenced, and this was in March of last year. Uh, I wish I could name, remember the name of the author, but she is she, she put out this article as an op-ed piece. And, you know, uh, uh, that was talking about Nazis and uh, a lot of Ukrainians died because she did that. So that's been a frustrating thing. And those narratives are being repeated in a number of um, different segments of the political spectrum, aren't they? On the Democrat side, we see the Kennedy candidate um, who, whatever his domestic agenda may be, I'm not that familiar with it, um, Certainly when it comes to foreign policy, he seems to be particularly poorly informed, um, knows next to nothing about Ukraine, but what he does say comes straight out of the Kremlin playbook. So, I mean, this is going to upset quite a few people uh, watching this channel, um, but uh, Mr. Trump also had a penchant for repeating a number of Kremlin lines as if he was briefed by somebody who wanted to inject certain narratives into his speech. Um, uh, to, to put it sort of kindly, <laughs> that he was poorly informed or influenced. Um, can we get to the bottom of, of, of the source of this information and how people are able to inject these narratives into the bloodstream of the political environment? Yeah, well, and... Uh... You know, I, I could make a ton of money if I could figure out the reasons that things come out of Donald Trump's mouth. Uh, so, and, and and so I have no insight into kind of uh, where he gets his information or what makes him say what he says. Um, but I can tell you that um, conservative Christians, in particular, are being targeted uh, by criminal propaganda. And uh, uh, my mother is a wonderful woman, uh, eighty-nine years old. And she is a devout Christian, and she sends me stuff that she gets from these newsletters that are, you know, um, you know, from who knows who, right? Uh, they're never from, you know, they're from, you know, the Trump news train or something like that, you know? Who are these people? And uh, and they'll say things like, Zelensky is a cocaine addict, and they'll have a picture of Zelensky at his desk with a Photoshop pile of cocaine on his desk, right? Uh, or um, or, you know, the, there's the whole narrative of uh, Zelensky cracking down on Christian churches. But there's two sources of that. One is that the Russian Orthodox Church here are essentially agents of the Kremlin. And you can look on the Internet and you can see Russian Orthodox priests, priests in Russia 
blessing fighter planes as they take off to go bomb Ukraine. Uh, so it's almost analogous to, to the imams, you know, who would, who would, you know, bless the, the suicide bombers. Um, and, uh, and then, so, so, you know, of course, when there's Russian agents inside your country, you are going to stop them. And that's what Zelensky did. The other thing is that, uh, you'll see headlines that Ukraine cracking down on Christians and in Luhansk, the Russian occupiers were cracking down on churches and that nuance, not a nuance at all, but you know, that fact escapes the headlines. And so these headlines are designed to be truthful, but misleading. It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, that probably comes partly from um, a general ignorance of, of history and that is not purely American. You get that right across Europe. You get that in Italy and all sorts of places. You get misconstrued history in Germany and war guilt. But this very idea that under Stalin, the Orthodox Church existed, and as you say, it was an agent of the KGB, there seems to be a sort of continuity there, but people aren't aware of the background. Yeah, yeah, and that's and that's a shame. I mean, you know, here in general, what people like you and I are up against is... Um, we are telling the truth and we've got a five paragraph essay and people like the Kremlin, people like Tucker Carlson have a bumper sticker, you know, and Ukraine is corrupt or Ukraine is cracking down on Christians. And, you know, it took me, I don't know, a minute to just explain to your viewers what that was about. So, um, so the truth takes some time to digest whereas you know a lie is just like that that's it and of course journalists even if they're well-meaning journalists kind of have their hands tied behind their backs uh we saw that in the ecocide the ecological terror of the uh, novikovka dam where it took many days if not a week or so for the media to come around and say oh well it probably was russia in the meantime there's been a deluge of uh, propaganda um, and uh, that then sticks in people's minds. Um, how do we overcome that? And is it a question of actually just uh, identifying the individuals, reaching out to them, not demonizing them, but trying to debate with them? I mean, how do you approach this on, on, a, on an individual level? Because you can't persuade everybody. So do you look for influencers? Do you look for people who are making policy? I mean, where do you focus your time and attention? Yeah, great question. Thanks for that. Um, so I, I am fortunate that I have personal relationships with a lot of people on Capitol Hill. So um, as one example, I was able to speak to the House Republican Chief of, Stra Chief of Staff annual conference. And about 200 Republican chiefs of staff, leadership staff, you know, very influential staffers uh, were there. And I spent 45 minutes talking to them about my, my experiences in Ukraine. And, you know, and I've spent enough time talking to groups and I, and I try to talk to kind of opinion leaders. Uh, and, and, and when I go back to the States, I've, I've spoken to, I don't know, several, several groups, well, close to probably a thousand people um, in, uh, in, in the U.S. And uh, so... Um, what I try to do is I, I find that, that when people understand the value of this to taxpayers, they kind of, it clicks. And, uh, so, um, if you cast the widest net for spending on weapons, uh, for Ukraine is $48 billion. And not all of that has gotten to Ukraine because of government bureaucracy and efficiency. And, uh, and then there's, a lot of that is like I was driving down the road yesterday and there was a Humvee. There's a clawed convoy of Humvees in front of me. And, you know, these had all seen better days. These were not the ones that just rolled off the assembly line. Right. So we're sending our secondhand stuff over to Ukraine. Um, but but the value is forty eight billion dollars. You divide that over two years is twenty four billion dollars, which sounds like a lot of money. But Jonathan, the U.S. Department of Defense annually spends around $800 billion, $800 billion. So, so $24 billion is what, 3% of the annual budget of the US Department of Defense. And for that amount of money, the Ukrainian military 
has has taken the second most powerful military in the world and changed it into the second most powerful military in Ukraine. And not one U.S. soldier has had to die for that. And, you know, and, and now also think about it this way, is that we've been spending this $800 billion on defense for decades. And, and, it's, and it's kind of ramped up. So it's not always been that, but it's been of that scale. And uh, so, um, you know, and this is, and, and nothing like this has ever happened, right? So we have not degraded Russia's military by half, by any other means except for this one. So it's dirt cheap. This is a great use of taxpayer dollars. And when you put it in the, that context, it's hard to argue with. But again, I just spent a minute <laughs> or a minute and a half Talk to your talking to your viewers about this. And of course, many people, the most active politically actually, come from the older generation. And, and those watching this channel, typically the average age is 65. So it's people brought up during the Cold War. It's people brought up on newspapers who can, you know, who can actually assimilate more information by sort of reading about it. And we know these videos are watched around sort of the average view time is about 25 minutes, which is extraordinary. So some of these messages do get through. And when people think about them, they go, oh yeah. That kind of makes sense to me. And I think it's very powerful. And this is why we've chosen a video format, because it makes it easier to consume. Um, but as you say, nothing's come close to sort of taking Russia out in terms of its military. However, if the supply of weapons, if the scope of that was increased, the capability was increased, the speed of supply was increased, one could argue that... Russia would be taken out to a far greater extent. Now, there's quite a bit of debate in this area. And one of the fears, certainly I have, is that uh, the US administration, and indeed probably the Germans, the French and others, are purposefully slowing down the supply of weapons, not because they don't want Ukraine to win, but because they don't want Russia to lose catastrophically, and they fear Russian collapse. So if you buy into this idea, why is the idea of keeping the status quo in Russia, no matter how awful it is, and undoubtedly it is, why is that idea attractive compared to what for me is the logical thing is let it fall apart. Let it, let it fall apart because so many of the world geopolitical problems stem from Russian interference, you know, not just in yeah. Europe but around the world. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with you. Um, let nature take its course. And now people that I talk to in Capitol Hill, another thing I hear is that, that uh, why isn't Europe doing more? Well, and, and to be fair, the combined countries of Europe are, are now exceeding the US contribution uh, of, of weapon and it's in aid to Ukraine. And uh, if you look at the refugee flow, uh, Poland, you know, as a one example, is really uh, supporting Ukraine a lot, you know, according to its size and the, you know, the Baltic states, obviously. Um, but when people in America are looking for leadership in Europe, they're looking at France and Germany, essentially. And, you know, German, <laughs> I don't know how many past German presidents are on the payroll of Russian energy companies. I've lost count. And, uh, you know, so there's this, and, and Angela Merkel was, you know, she could see be seen as perhaps the root of this problem. You know, why, why did she press for uh, Nord Stream 2, uh, you know, after Donbass, you know, after 2014? And, you know, and so there's a lot of self-interest on the, on the part of, of Germany that's not pretty. And then you look at France and my favorite experience with the French, with, with Macron was that, you know, I'm sitting here in Kiev in October, and this is the first time that, that Putin starts talking about, well, maybe we'll use nukes. So I'm sitting here in Kiev and it's probably at the top of his hit list. And Macron says, if Putin uses nuclear weapons, France will not retaliate. <laughs> like, dude, retaliate or don't retaliate, but don't tell him. Strategic ambiguity is the key to having nuclear weapons, and uh, and so you know that was just the the certainly the low point for first French participation over here, and uh, and so um, but again you look at Poland, you look at Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, 
uh, you know, the, 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 the um, uh, Scandinavian countries, these guys are putting in massive amounts of aid into Ukraine versus their, their GDP. And one of the consistent arguments we heard during the Trump administration, uh, which has some validity to it, and that is Europe doesn't pay for its own defense, that it uses the US as a crutch. And that still seems to be trotted out as a reason for not supporting Ukraine. But as you say, many European countries seem to have stepped up, uh, including um, you know, the Netherlands that has now announced supply of 42 uh, F-16s. Um, how do we tackle this narrative? I mean, I know Europe isn't fully stepping up and we haven't reached the sort of GDP thresholds that ideally for the contribution to NATO wage reach, but there has been a, a sea change and, and that ought to be able to counter the, the propaganda message that, that Europe doesn't care about its own freedom. Yeah, I mean, at this point, uh, you know, even the lackluster performance of Germany and France is coming around uh and uh you know so so uh so yeah that's that's something that that's happening and again poland i love poland i've been there like 10 15 times you know during this conflict and uh and you know those guys are doing everything they can that's a country that shows leadership and i think that um americans when they're looking for leadership in europe they got to look towards uh, some of these up and coming countries like Poland. And, uh, and so that's, that's um, and, and, you know, and here's the other thing too, think about this. Americans are worried about Germany and France and all these countries. They shouldn't be worried about these, these countries. They should be worried about North Korea, Iran, China, and all the the you know classic axis of evil characters characters that are lining up behind Russia, so you know they're looking for the wrong thing. They're looking at our allies and complaining. They should be looking at Russia's allies and figuring out where the the fault lines are for the next war. And one of the big changes over the last couple of weeks that I've heard both from people who are at the front. Um, and I don't think it's a, it's not a secret. There have now been articles published about it. And that is that Russia, we saw their troops last year poorly supplied with terrible equipment, terrible leadership, et cetera. There does seem to be a change now, however, with uniforms, night scopes, and a massive amount of drones being supplied by China. So does the idea that China is going all in as this axis of evil, all in, uh, to a imperialistic, aggressive, genocidal power, which is how Russia is behaving. Would this sway people, perhaps, in the US political establishment, if they see China, uh, who is the perennial bogeyman for many, um, you know, on, on the uh, many, many sides of the aisle, if they see China's involvement, is, would that provide impetus to, uh, to support Ukraine further? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um... You know, you got guys like uh, in the House, you got Mike, Mike Gallagher, who's putting together this. Uh, he's got this committee. He's got the chairmanship of a committee on China. Uh, smart man. Really good guy. Uh, Marco Rubio in uh, in the Senate. He is all over China all the time. And so and, and look, China is probably the bigger threat than Russia at this point. But Russia is a big threat, and it has been for a long time. So, you know, the, one of the ways I look at it is, is if you think there is a going to be an eventual conflict with China, then this is a great tune-up war for that. Because what have we learned? We've learned that when we have an opportunity to have other people fight and die to destroy one of our enemies, we have the inability to quickly get them weapons. And, you know, to just take the Abrams tanks as an example, we promised those tanks in January. It's August and there's no tanks here. So, uh, so what is the job of the U.S. Department of Defense, if not to get weapons to a war zone quickly? We've learned also that, again, for a meager amount of money, 24 billion, 48 billion, you know, $24 billion annually, um, we have, people say we've depleted uh, our stocks of shells and and other ammunition and other other goods. Well, 
We're spending $800 billion a year in defense in the United States. Where does that money go if it takes $24 billion a year to cripple our warfighting capability? You know, we've learned that, that our drones are not effective against Russian electronic warfare countermeasures. Our drones were designed to be used against men in caves in Afghanistan, and they don't hold up to a technologically advanced adversary. Um, as one example, I've got a friend, an American guy, who, who trudged around uh, Donetsk Oblast with two uh, teal gold needle drones in his backpack that he couldn't get to work. And so meanwhile, there's at least 200 drone manufacturers here in Ukraine who are doing exemplary work of, of with a rapid innovation cycle and coming up with an, uh, amazing drones and amazing weapons. So this is a great tune-up war if you're worried about a, a war with China. And that's, I, I want to sort of, uh, you know, launch into that as a topic, because I think this is the other incredible learning is where you have a, uh, a country essentially that has a startup mentality baked into its culture, as Ukraine seems to, where you also have a strong civic society and a sense of strong civic ownership of problems and where central government is often absent from, from you know, providing solutions to those. This is also an extraordinary lesson in entrepreneurship, moving quickly, deferring down responsibility to society as opposed to a cumbersome, bureaucratic, centralized government. Surely there are lessons there for the US, the UK, and more mature democracies in, in perhaps how we reform and do things differently, especially in the military sphere. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I'm, I'm friends with a, a former, uh, well, she's, she's on the board of my organization, uh, Katarina McFarland. She's, she's, uh, a, um, uh, she was the chief acquisition officer at the DOD, at the Pentagon. And she had a great one-liner. She said, uh, China has a much more efficient procurement strategy than, than the Pentagon. It takes five, five years to get new technology into the Pentagon. If China wants new technology, they just steal it. So, uh, you know, and it, it's hard to argue with that. And so um, that is the question, you know, what, how do, <laughs> is thievery the way to go? It seems to be working for China. Uh, mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, so, so uh, there's a, a lot of stuff that this war has shown us is not working with DOD. And, um, and so, uh, you know, and, and if you, think that there's going to be a war with China, then it's probably going to be sparked by Taiwan. And, you know, do we have the capability to get Taiwan the weapons it needs in a timely fashion? And, uh, you know, and, and is this limited, you know, because again, that's a group of people who will fight one of our adversaries and they will die. So we don't have to. And, um, you know, and Ukraine looks at itself like, you know, there's, there's, there's people again, like the, the Tucker Carlson's of the world, the Donald Trump's of the world, you know, they, that, you know, that Ukraine is coming begging to the United States. Ukraine views themselves as our partner. And we're, they're helping us destroy one of our longtime adversaries, Russia. And we're supplying the goods, the equipment, they're supplying the lives of their very best people. And, you know, and, and the people that have died in this war that I have become acquainted with are, you know, lawyers, there's a human rights activist that, that went to go fight. He's, he's dead. Uh, you know, um, software engineers, really smart people. And, you know, they, against the, the convicts that Ash is putting out there. So. And this is another, uh, propaganda narrative that seems to be very effective, unfortunately. And that is that, one, Ukraine is not winning, two, that the war is unwinnable, Russia is inevitable, Russia is too big to fail, blah, blah, blah. If you wrap these all up together, this seems to be a very potent um, narrative that, that, that actually acts to delay uh, the supply of armaments, because we saw it early on in the war, well, why supply all this equipment? It's only going to fall into Russian hands. It's been proved wrong over and over and over, but it just seems to keep working. So how do we get the message across that Ukraine is winning, Ukraine has won back huge amounts of territory, and despite the relative perception that the counteroffensive is, is running slowly, um, 
Ukraine has a good chance, actually, of achieving its maximalist aims. How do you communicate that? Well, and, and interesting, the Reagan Foundation uh, produced some polling, and uh, they came up with uh, some phraseology that that uh, it, it's effective among all voters, but particularly among Republicans. Forty-one percent of Republicans, um, when when asked on a poll, will say um, that. Ukraine aid has been worth the cost. That's 41%, not a majority, not a good place. If you tell them that um, Ukraine has taken back, is currently in control of 87% of their territory, uh, that, you know, again, that, that the, the cost of this is 3% of the annual budget of the DOD, and uh, that U.S. intelligence estimates that, that the Russians have lost half of their warfighting capability, that information moves 18% of the, in the of Republicans into the yay category. Um, so Ukraine is winning. They still, they've got 87% of the territory. Uh, Ukraine aid is a good deal because it's only 3% of the annual budget of DOD. And it's effective because more than, you know, half of, of Putin's warfighting capability has been degraded. So this information moves people. It makes people feel better about the U.S. contribution to Ukraine. Um, and, you know, at this point, every American is sacrificing a monthly cost about equal to a Netflix uh, subscription. And Ukrainians are sacrificing many of their best people. So, uh, uh, so it's, a, it's a great partnership for the United States. And how else can this be communicated? The sort of if you put it in terms of cost benefit analysis, or with recent speakers, you know, I've been asking the question: We have to imagine what would happen if Russia was victorious. Not just imagine what would happen on the ground in Ukraine; it would be horrific, obviously, as we as we both know. But what would be the cost to UK alliances, the UK economy, sorry, US alliances, US economy, in fact, to the entire concept of a rules-based order um, and the sort of free trade that is the foundation of uh, US wealth. I mean, how do we get the idea across that a Russian victory would significantly damage US interests globally? Well, Jonathan, if if I had been right, if if almost everyone in the world had been right, and the Russians would roll through Ukraine in three weeks, then we wouldn't be talking about the war in Ukraine. We'd be talking about the war in Taiwan, because Xi Jinping would have said, you know, Putin got away with that. I bet I can do that, uh, and and then the world would be a much much more grim place, and. Um, similarly, right now, you know, we're looking at the fraying of the coalition that is supporting Ukraine. And if that coalition evaporates after 18 or 24 months, then Xi Jinping will, yeah, I mean, he's going to say, I can make that deal. <laughs> you know, I, all I got to do is invade Taiwan and the world will forget about it in 24 months. I'm in. Let's do it. Is this so, Putin's um, strategy as well? You know, is he waiting for the US elections, waiting for the German elections where the far right are gaining, you know, quite scarily gaining quite a lot of ground? Is he waiting for the Taiwan war to kick off? And then he'll think, okay, well, it's going to be safer to invade Europe, Moldova, the Baltics. If he feels the US is distracted tackling China, then he would have a free hand to roll back the frontiers of, of, say, the Cold War. Time favors Putin. Because, you know, they talk about the, the stresses on the U.S. defense system that the Ukraine wars had been, you know, has been responsible for. Um, but it's been amazingly stressful on the Russian war capabilities, right? Um, you know, they're running out of missiles. Uh, there's, there's World War II era tanks showing up in Donbass. Uh, you know, it's, I mean, look, the heir to the Soviet war fighting machine is buying missiles and drones from Iran. <laughs> right? Think about that for a second. So if there is a pause in this war, what it does, it gives Putin an opportunity to rearm and he, you know, and, and, and so, 
he gets more missiles that he can shoot at Ukraine. Uh, you know, two years, he's got a lot more oil money and uh, and he can buy a lot more weaponry and then he'll come back because um, his stated goal is the reunification of the Soviet Union and uh, the uh, the rebirth of the of the Russian Empire. So, yeah, I think that time favors Putin. And you can talk about the elections. You can talk about money. You can talk about weapons. There's a whole bunch of ways to look at this. And of course, I mean, the area we should perhaps end on is is to you know finally address this idea that we should not be fearful of the collapse of the Russian Empire. In fact. That should be our strategic goal in supplying Ukraine, not simply, you know, allowing Ukraine to survive. Why do you think this idea is so difficult to people? And do you think we really do lack an overall strategic objective like like the one I just outlined? Well, and and in terms of the strategic objective, um, I am I, actually uh, friends with a Supreme Court justice here in Ukraine. Really uh, smart guy, and uh, he is. There's a group of Supreme Court justices that have organized their um, have, have organized a battalion, and they're on top of apartment buildings here in Kiev with machine guns shooting down drones. And I go, I help them, I bring them generators, I I, I help them in other ways. And uh, and he says to me, you know, Stephen, maybe you can help me understand this. I understand Trump's position. I don't like it. I don't agree with it, but I understand his position cut off the supply of weapons to Ukraine and and end the war and and put pressure on Russia. He's like, I understand that. That's a strategy. He's like, and I understand the strategy of helping Ukraine win, of giving us the weapons we need, of sending us the tanks, sending us the F-16s, and and giving us the the weapons and the overwhelming force that we can do to to destroy Russia. What I don't understand is what's happening now is that there's a drip, drip, drip of weapons um, that takes them a long time to get here. And doesn't Biden have to explain that to the voters, you know, next November? Why is he doing this? And, you know, I don't have a good answer for that. Uh, and and uh, so, um, but but as you and I have alluded to, there's a lot of conversations about, you know, I've got Ukrainians, really smart Ukrainians that are coming up with all kinds of conspiracy theories about why um, the Americans are staying, they're helping, and then sending the weapons slowly mm. it seems to be, yeah seems to be a political calculation because of course they did send the cluster munitions which was both controversial but of course extremely helpful maybe they thought there'd be no blowback that that's a way of supplying ukraine without destabilizing either the internal political position within the democrat party without destroying the uh you know bipartisan arrangement how far do you think you know internal politics is driving this caution or is there simply a lack of thinking and understanding going on yeah um i think that there's probably more tension in the ranks of the uh of the uh, of the anti-war democrats i mean look for decades for my entire life the democrats have been the anti-war party and now for whatever reason the republicans are the anti-war party and and it's it's difficult to wrap my head around but you know there's there's a lot of people still in congress a lot of those folks are um getting up there in years they've been around a long time and they have that anti-war dna so um i gotta think that there's probably a lot more going on on the democrat side than we're aware of i think that that's a useful a place to to sort of end up understanding the complexities behind what on the surface seems to be quite a, a head scratcher um Last question, are you overall optimistic uh, for, you know, where Ukraine is and where it's going? I mean, despite the horrific, uh, the horrific casualties and the horrific losses, as you say, of intelligent people, do you have long-term optimism for the future of Ukraine? Jonathan, I am probably one of the most optimistic people you will meet on the future of Ukraine. Um, and, and I'll give you a sense of it. And I kind of alluded to this, but I'll give you an anecdote. Uh, at the beginning of the war, um, a friend of mine said, uh, hey, uh, my friends have a combat unit. They're fighting in Bucha. Um, or she actually didn't tell me where they're fighting. Uh, she said they're fighting in the area around Kiev. Uh, can you bring them some combat boots? So I scooped up a bunch of Loa combat boots and brought them to Kiev. I met this guy and I said, hey, what's your name? 
Can't tell you. Uh, okay, where are you fighting? Can't tell you. And so I said, look, dude, if you want the boots, you're going to have to tell me a story. And so the guy, okay, he's a young guy, probably like 25 or something. And, uh, and, and he rolls up his sleeve and he shows me a bracelet. And it's a child's bracelet. And he says, I was fighting in Bucha and I was hiding out in this family's house. And there's a little 10 year old girl there. And I didn't have a backpack to put my munitions in. So this little girl went and got her backpack, dumped it out and, uh, and, and gave it to me. I put my munitions in it and I went out and we killed a bunch of Russians. We drove them out of Bucha. And um, when I was done, the little girl and her family was long gone, but I dumped my stuff out of there and this bracelet fell out. So I wear this bracelet now to honor this little girl who gave me her backpack. So, and so that's a touching story on the face of it. But let's look at that for a second. There's two things you should notice about this, at least two things. One is that when he was driving the Russians out of Bucha, he didn't have combat boots because I brought those to him. When he was driving the Russians out of Bucha, he was using a My Little Pony backpack and they won. So what if this guy had night vision goggles? What if this guy had proper body armor? What if he had proper comms, right? You know, what if he had enough drones? I mean, these Ukrainians are brave and innovative and they're amazing. And every time I meet someone in the field, they're more amazing than the last person I met. So uh, I am totally bullish on Ukraine. If we get the weapons that they need over here, we can collaborate with Ukrainians to take out one of the, the biggest geopolitical purveyors of nonsense, the Russians, in the world, right? Yep, absolutely. Couldn't agree more on that. And, and that kind of level of cooperation, innovation, if transferred to civilian life, uh, will give us confidence for the future economy of Ukraine and the fact that it could be a net contributor to, to the world economy and a key ally for the US in, in generating wealth in the future. Oh, these people are so innovative. It's amazing. Well, Stephen, that's been a huge pleasure speaking to you. I think we got really most of the uh, propaganda narratives tackled there. Hopefully... <laughs> Hopefully this will be uh, helpful. And if people can share the video with yeah. many friends that they may have who are unconvinced, hopefully this will change a few minds.